Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by best-selling author and business journalist, Christopher Leonard. I'm grateful to speak with him about his most recent book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy, which documents what he calls the ZERP era of extraordinary monetary policy between the 2008 global financial crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic. Christopher, Thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Who is Thomas Honig, and why is he such a crucial figure in your story? Yeah, you know, Thomas Honig is the kind of guy that might not usually get a lot of attention. He's He's a senior official inside the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank. So, the you know, the Fed is the central bank of the United States. They make uh, new dollars. They control the supply of dollars. Extraordinary power, really. And the Fed has extraordinary power that's concentrated in, in the hands, really, of a committee of 12 voting members. And these are the folks that gather every six weeks and decide whether the Fed's going to cut interest rates, raise interest rates, do whatever. So Tom Honig is a guy who sat on that committee during what I really do think is like the most consequential time period in the history of of the United States Fed. And and I don't say that lightly, but what we're talking about here is the year 2010. Okay, so this is after the global financial crisis. It's kind of in the wake of that huge emergency. And this was a time when when the U.S. Fed decided to embark on this very experimental, very unprecedented path of of really, we just have to say, aggressive, hyper-aggressive money printing or easy money. And Tom was the guy who tried to stop it. He was the Fed official who voted against it. And, you know, he'd kind of been remembered by history as this sort of cantankerous dissenter who voted no all the time. But the the real story is a lot more complicated than that, as I discovered. A key reminder in the book is that even before the extraordinary quantitative easing in response to the global financial crisis, the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world were running historically low interest rates. Let me ask a two-part question. First, why were rates so low in the first half decade or so of the 2000s? And second, what role did Federal Reserve policy play in actually precipitating the 2008 crash? Wow, great questions. I mean, it's so interesting. When the Fed 
cuts interest rates, when it has so-called like easy money policies, uh, you know, uh, you know, the best way to think about that is the central bank is trying to juice economic growth by making money cheap. It's encouraging speculative investment. It's encouraging borrowing. It's it's encouraging uh, trading in the stock market. It's pumping up the prices of houses and stocks. So it's it's pumping dollars into the economy at the most basic level. And the interesting, you know, our central banks had a very interesting history under Alan Greenspan, who's kind of this legendary chief of the Fed from like 1987 to 2006. The Fed was able to print more money and have easier money policies without stoking the one real negative break on Fed action, which is price inflation. And, and you know, I kind of walk through it in the book. It's a little complicated, but like for the purposes of this, let's say that by the year 2000, the Fed found that it could really keep interest rates lower than most people thought was possible without stoking inflation. And they kept facing crisis after crisis, you know, the dot-com bust of the nineteen of 1999, the, the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001, which were coming amidst a recession already in place. And every time there's kind of this downturn or turbulence, the Fed would respond by lowering rates. And it's pretty clear that between 2003 and 2006 ballpark, the Fed kept rates too low for too long. It just kept the, the borrowing was too easy. The money was too plentiful. And it directly contributed to the housing bubble in the United States. I mean, it's, it's like intuitive. When rates are low, you borrow more money to buy more houses. The price of houses goes up. It was all carried by low rates. And then in 06, the Fed tried to hit the brakes and the whole thing came crashing down. Okay. In response to the crisis, the Federal Reserve launched a program of quantitative easing that even Honig himself voted in favor of. Do you want to talk a bit about the rationale and scale of that early program? Totally, totally. I mean, okay, so the Fed is really interesting. The Fed is the only institution on earth that can create new money out of thin air. The Fed literally creates dollars out of thin air, and it does that, incidentally, by making these new dollars appear inside these special bank accounts on Wall Street, okay? It doesn't create money in, like, Chris Leonard's checking account. It creates money in Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs. Okay, so the Fed has tremendous power in the sense it can create new money. And we we built the Fed in 1913 to manage our currency, the United States dollar, to keep it on an even keel, and also to be there in the case of financial panics. So the idea is when our banking system faces a panic and it's about to collapse, the Fed will step in and say, hey, we'll print money, we'll lend it to healthy banks, and then when the crisis is over, we'll get repaid to keep everything stable. So 2008, the global financial crisis was, was a bank run on steroids. It was a massive, massive seizure of the global financial system. And the Federal Reserve stepped in and used its emergency money printing powers at just an extraordinary level. They, they basically created a trillion dollars out of thin air. And to put that in context, that's about as much money as the Fed had created in the first 95 years it was around. And, and I can walk through the details of that. But so basically, they print like a century's worth of money in, a, in a, about a year, really. 
And they were loaning money to foreign central banks. They were bailing out. They were funding bailouts of United States banks. And one of the things they did was kind of not noticed at the time. And it was called quantitative easing. And they just went out into the market and directly purchased home loan debt and United States government debt, treasury bills, by by pumping, by creating new dollars. And it's difficult to... Like, here's what's so crazy about the Fed. You know, you start talking about it and it gets pretty technical really quick. It's not like it's rocket science, but there's just mechanics to it. But the Fed had never really purchased home loan debt before in the way they did with quantitative easing in the crisis. So, look, to me, the important thing is, is that the Fed did this emergency measure of quantitative easing in 08 as part of this huge rescue. And nobody really complained. The main character of the book, Tom Honig, who's relatively small-c conservative, like the Fed should use its power with restraint, even this guy voted for it. Yeah. He's like, hey, man, we're, this is a five-alarm fire. We, we got to put it out. But you know, the book really starts in late 2010. Totally different era, okay? Look, things were terrible in the American economy. Unemployment was 9.7% in 2010. We were the crisis was over, but growth was still weak. We had this huge hangover of from the debt crisis, and this is the moment when the Fed basically started saying, you know, we're going to use money printing as a jobs program. We're we're going to try to drive U.S. economic growth through quantitative easing, and that's really where this story starts. That's when the Fed really expands its role in our economy and undertakes a set of policies, I just can't overstate it enough, that were experimental and unprecedented in quantitative easing. Christopher, we'll come to this prolonged period of extraordinary monetary policy in a minute, but I just want to talk a bit about the transition from the crash to the the post-2010 world that you're talking about. A fascinating insight in the book is how little scrutiny the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing in the context of the global financial financial crisis received from media and others. Why do you think that is? It's so fascinating. And so, look, I, I'm an investigative reporter in the U.S. that covers big business. I've, I've written about giant corporations. I've written about monopolies. And so much attention was given to the bad actors of the financial crisis, like appropriately, you know, a uh, countrywide mortgage, like these basically scam artists that were doing these loans that had no hope of being paid back. But what struck me was the very, very large role that the central bank played. They, you know, fraud and scam and corporate malfeasance is the weather and the Fed creates the climate. And the Fed created the climate of cheap money and easy money that fueled all this stuff in 2000, you know, in the 2000s. And it came to a crashing stop in 08. Now, is the Fed 100% responsible? Of course not. It's a big, complicated picture. But the Fed played a huge role in creating the crash. But to your point, when the, when the crash happened, the only attention that was given to the Fed was as like the firefighting team or like the rescue squad that came in and printed a bunch of money to stop the carnage. And so most of the attention around the Fed was like, oh, my God, thank God we've got, you know, Ben Bernanke here to bail us out. And believe me, I felt that as like, you know, clinging to the bottom rung of the middle class back then. Like I was glad they did the bailout and stopped the carnage. But. 
it's time to scrutinize the role they play. And so like the question is why why doesn't why don't the policies get more attention as they're happening? And you know, look, I think a big part of this is that the Fed's actions seem so complicated and they seem so removed from our daily life. I actually really like the analogy of climate. It's like it's kind of hard to wrap your head around climate change and it's kind of tough to stand back and look at the sort of large scale effects of what the central bank does when it either tightens or loosens the money supply. But it it's driving the climate. And the the problem is, I mean, twofold here. Look, all central banks are built to shield themselves from voters. They're they they're not elected. The 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 heads of central banks tend to be appointed by, you know, elected representatives, but never run for election. And then furthermore, they they really cloak their actions in this very complex, difficult to understand vocabulary and jargon. I mean, just the phrase quantitative easing really means nothing. And we can talk about what it is mechanically. But so I, I think that they they feel removed from daily life and they emphasize that by pretending that what they're doing is so complicated, we can't understand it. I would just say in parentheses that the observation about the lack of scrutiny is not merely a perception. The, the book details using media analysis how little there was uh, at reporting at that time uh, about what precisely uh, the Federal Reserve was doing. That's a good segue, Christopher, to your broader point, which is the extent to which the Federal Reserve's program of quantitative easing continued well after the crisis. What was the rationale for continuing quantitative easing and zero bound interest rates after the U.S. economy had resumed growing? So basically, it's it's just fascinating. Um, the guy who led the Fed in 2010 was Ben Bernanke. And so he was he was Fed chairman during the crash of 08. And he was famously a student of the uh, Great Depression and and really had this general mindset that it was always better to do more than less, never get caught not acting. Because his conclusion, which was based on good evidence, is that back in the Depression, the Fed didn't do enough. The Fed kept money too tight. But also, that misses a lot of what happened after the Depression. Like, I, And this is really important, actually. After the Depression in the U.S., you know, the United States responded with big government action. I mean, it's called the New Deal. The Fed broke up banks. They put Wall Street under all these new regulations. The federal government empowered labor unions. They did public works programs. None of that was really happening in 2010. So Ben Bernanke had this theory that, okay, here we are in 2010, unemployment's still high, economic growth is still weak, we're, we still have this terrible hangover from a global financial crash. We don't have a new deal, so let's have quantitative easing. Let's drive job growth by printing money. And so let me please, if I could, really quickly explain what quantitative easing is, because it's- please. Fascinating. This is where it all started for me. The Federal Reserve has a, a trading desk, a trading floor in New York City that I've toured. It's inside the New York Fed. It looks like the trading floor of just a big bank like JP Morgan or something with all these 20-something people in fleeces with little anemic plants on their desks doing financial trading. Okay. And there's literally one room over in the corner 
where a Fed financial trader will sit down at a desk and he'll call up or he or she will call up a bank on Wall Street. And the Fed trader will say, hey, we want to purchase $8 billion worth of treasury bills from you at this price. And the bank says, okay, here you go. The bank sends the treasury bills to the Fed and the Fed, through a few clicks of keyboard, creates $8 billion out of nowhere that appears inside the reserve account of that bank. So what quantitative easing is, is replicating that transaction again and again and again until you have created, at first, hundreds of billions of dollars and later trillions of dollars inside these bank accounts on Wall Street. And so to put it in perspective, the Fed printed between 08 and 2015, the Fed printed three and a half trillion dollars. That's three and a half times as much money as it printed in the first 95 years of its existence. The other way I put that is that's like 350 years worth of money creation in about four and a half or five years. And all that money is like a tidal wave heading into Wall Street. And it's it's then after that, it's searching out a place to exist and live in the economy. So that's why it fuels buying stocks, buying bonds, buying corporate junk debt. It pumps up asset prices. So Ben Bernanke in 2010 was saying, hey, the Fed has never done quantitative easing before. It's never tried to do this kind of aggressive money printing, but the economy's kind of moving sideways. It's no coincidence that all this started literally the day after the midterm elections of 2010 when the, the Tea Party movement in the United States took over our Congress, which basically sidelined Congress. So it was all this decision of like, hey, the Fed's going to step in and drive economic growth. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. That's fascinating. Um, similarly, just to put those some of those numbers in perspective, Christopher, that's about one and a half times the size of the Canadian economy. So we're talking big dollars. You just outlined some of Ben Bernanke's thinking behind the ongoing program of quantitative easing um, through 2010 and beyond. One thing that struck me in the book was how successful he was at persuading the other governors to follow him in this, what you describe as extraordinary monetary policy experiment. Why is that? Why was he ultimately so successful at, at getting support for this agenda? First of all, yeah, he he's a very adept political leader of the central bank. And, you know, I can't, what's implicit in that question that I think is really important to point out is that there was a lot of opposition to doing this. You know, my guy, Tom Honig, who's the main character, voted no, actually eight times in a row, not to do this. But he wasn't the only person 
who was against it. You know, you look back at the meetings, at the transcripts of the meetings they had, and there were at least four or five members of this top committee who said, do not do this, okay? QE, as they call it, is going to be very risky. It's going to have a lot of unintended consequences, and we're not going to get much out of it. I mean, honestly, I'm not trying to be glib. My jaw kind of dropped when I read through the transcripts, and the benefit in terms of the jobs that were going to be created from this was tiny. It was like going to reduce the unemployment rate by like 0.3%, which is a lot of jobs, but look at the side effects. So I'm going to answer your question about how Bernanke essentially pressured these people to go along. But but first, it's important to note like, hey, you know, what could be the matter with pumping money into the economy to create jobs? Uh, you know, I mean, assuming that you're okay with government intervention, it doesn't sound that bad. But you got to remember this money is going to the big banks first, and it is fueling asset growth. Banks, you know, buy bonds, they buy stocks. The model that we used after the Great Depression of 1929 was totally different. We hi literally hired people around the country to like build dams, build roads, and that puts money in the pocket of people who spend it at the ground level. Quantitative easing is is pumping up Wall Street and the banking system. And these people inside the Fed were saying, hey, we're just going to have another giant bubble is what's going to happen. You're, you're going to enrich the banks. You're going to pump up stock prices. We're barely going to create any jobs. But it was very important to Bernanke that not, not just that the Fed did this, but that the vote was essentially unanimous with one person voting against it. And he did it, and he talks about it really openly in his memoir that he published in 2015. You know, he'd get these officials at the Fed one-on-one, -on -one, kind of, you know, harangue them, cajole with them, try to come up with a deal and get their vote lined up before the actual meeting happened. So all the votes were lined up. And he put you know, Ben Bernanke put tremendous pressure on this one guy who was voting no to to get in line and try to show total consensus. Yeah, I want to pick up something you mentioned earlier, Christopher, which is that one of the main arguments against the normalization of monetary policy through this era was the ongoing absence of price inflation. Begs the question, why? What explains what explains it in the in, in the period between the global financial crisis and the pandemic? So in 2018, it's in the book. I think I have that year right. I think it's 18, not 19. There, there was this huge uh, forum at this think tank in D.C. that's kind of prestigious called the Brookings Institution. And so this forum had, you know, Janet Yellen. Uh, gosh, I think Ben Bernanke was there. Paul Krugman, the famous leftist uh, economics correspondent, was there. And the topic was, why haven't we seen price inflation? You know, 10 years, we've been pumping money into the economy, every model, including the Feds. You know, I looked back at the Fed's internal forecasts, and they kept getting it wrong. They kept expecting more inflation. And so basically, at this Brookings Institution thing, you, it's clear, like, they had no clue. We We really don't know. Well, I think we have a better idea now, but price inflation never rose in the way we thought it would when you print so much money. And in, in inflation, as we're seeing today, it really is a function of pumping too many dollars into an economy when there are too few goods to be purchased. So you have all these dollars chasing stuff to buy, which drives up the price. 
Now, we got to make a really important point here, which is that we never saw price inflation significantly, okay? TVs, cars, hot dogs, all these consumer items were pretty flat in terms of price. We saw tremendous inflation in a different market for assets, okay, like houses, stocks, corporate debt. We saw double-digit consistent inflation in, in those markets, huge inflation. But when that happens, we like we love it. We call it a stock market boom, okay? And we, you, you pay the price later, but we liked it when it was happening. So, look, I think at the end of the day, we did not have significant inflation because the Fed was dumping all this money to the global economy during an era that was incredibly deflationary. I think largely because of these global supply chains we were building. I don't think it's a coincidence that the first huge inflation wave we saw came on the heels of massive global supply chain disruptions. Mm -hmm. And at that Brookings events I talked to, this was one of the big things they talked about. Like, geez, is it the fact that like there's all this cheap labor in China and cheap goods in China? I don't know. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's the fact that people have faith that the Fed will control inflation. Therefore, inflation doesn't happen. Yeah. So, I mean, the, you know, the supply chains come to a shuddering halt and inflation explodes. And I don't think it's coincidental. You've alluded to it a couple of times, but I, I want to put it to you uh, more directly. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, you have an excellent chapter that outlines the various economic consequences of this era, of cheap money, including asset bubbles, the rise of so-called zombie companies and growing inequality. Do you want to elaborate a bit on how you've come to think of these consequences? Totally. You know, I have to own uh, kind of my position at the end of reporting this book, which I think that quantitative easing is a terrible way to create economic growth. And and let me explain it in like two simple ways. I mean, first of all, the Fed knew that the way this was going to boost economic growth was by driving up asset prices, driving up the price of stocks, bonds, and real estate. Well, you look at the United States, the richest 1% of the people in the U.S. own, I think, about 40% of all of our assets. And the bottom half of everybody else owns about 5% of the assets. So when the Fed is pursuing this policy to drive up asset prices and create growth, it's enriching the very richest. It's widening income inequality, which is probably the preeminent economic issue in the United States right now, income inequality. It's totally tearing apart our society, honestly. I think it's at the root of a lot of our ills right now. And, and to specify that, I mean, the wealth creation for a small group of people at the top has been astounding. Like literally, they don't know what to do with the money. And then a huge bulk of the population is working harder than ever and slowly sinking behind. It creates a great deal of tension. So this policy drives up income inequality, number one. And number two, it creates massive financial instability. You know, when you pump up the stock market by printing money, uh, the stock market will fall when you have to tighten the money supply. And we saw the Fed stoke bubbles during the dot-com era by keeping rates too low and stoking speculation. We saw them do it during the housing bubble. Uh, we've seen them do it again in, in this era that we're writing about when they've pumped up these markets and then you know, really accelerated it in, in 2020. 
I mean, the last part of the book is about the COVID bailouts, which, you know, the Fed created, I talked about them creating three and a half trillion dollars and how like stunning that was. The Fed created north of $5 trillion in, in 2020 and 2021 pumped directly into the stock market. And so you've got the U.S. economy kind of stagnating and trying to figure out how to move forward and markets are just exploding, right? That's unstable because those prices can't stay that elevated forever without continued intervention. Uh, one interesting insight in the book from British central banker Paul Tucker is that the growing role of central banks in the modern economy is in large part a function of political choices. That central banks have become, quote, overmighty citizens because politicians prefer to delegate tough decisions. It's, it's a fascinating point. How is it that politicians have actively ceded their policymaking responsibilities to bankers? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. That Paul Tucker wrote a book called Unelected Power, I think is what it's called. And he talks about the overmighty citizens of the central banks. And he's so spot on. And and I think, you know, <laughs> I hate to say this. I think we're we're worse off here in the United States than our good neighbors up to the north in Canada, who just seem perpetually more like stable and sane than we are. But like in the US, our democratic institutions are defined by paralysis and dysfunction. We're just seeing it again and again. We had kind of a, a run here under, strangely, unexpectedly, under like Biden. They passed like industrial policy and, um, you know, uh, the huge COVID bail. It's like that was an anomaly. So what you see is that as your democratic systems become more dysfunctional and less able to act, a nation continues to operate, but it just relies on the more undemocratic institutions. You know, here in the U.S., we rely on, you know, a Supreme Court to mediate a lot of our public policy issues. We rely on military to handle foreign policy issues. And on economic stuff, we rely on the central bank, which wasn't built to be the primary driver of economic growth. It was built to manage a currency, which are totally different things. And so, you know, Definitely over the last decade, and, and I'm thinking right now of this woman who was a senior Fed official. She's one of these people on the voting committee named Betsy Duke, who told me that she just saw this again and again, that the politicians saw the Fed as free money because the Fed doesn't have to tax anyone to create these dollars. And so when you're having a bitter dispute in Congress about taxing and spending, and you can just keep fighting in circles and not getting anywhere, well, the Fed can just turn on the money hose. And and that would be great, I guess, if it was a sustainable, if it was like a sustainable route of of prosperity and growth. But money printing is just not that. You can't rely on it forever. So, yeah, I think the the democratic institutions here have really enjoyed the luxury of dysfunction. They've been allowed to not do their job, and the Fed has stepped in to try to print money to get us out of it. And and let me please, I mean, like. Even in the good old days of 2019, prior to COVID, the U.S. budget ran a structural deficit of a trillion dollars a year. That means like when our economy is growing, things were great. Unemployment was 3.7%. Things were not great, by the way, in terms of income inequality. But there was growth, and we were still borrowing a trillion dollars a year to run the government because the government wouldn't make decisions about 
taxing and spending. So anyway, you in a situation like that, you rely on the central bank to act. You get a sense, Christopher, that we are poised to learn the lessons from this extraordinary experience? Or do, do you think that that central bank orthodoxy, not just the United States, but really around the Western world has failed to kind of reckon with the costs and consequences of this extraordinary period of monetary policymaking? I mean, we've we've consciously decided we are going to put all of our energy into not reckoning with it. And by that, I mean, okay, let, let's look at corporate debt markets, which I talk a lot about in the book. Corporate debt reached a record level in 2020. Okay, in this era of easy money, corporate debt almost doubled from six trillion to about eleven trillion in the United States. We're talking very highly leveraged companies that just borrowed ridiculous amounts of money at low interest rates. They were indebted up to the hilt. And then when a downturn came, they started to default like those homeowners in the subprime crash. Rather than face the consequences, the Fed literally went out and started buying corporate junk debt for the first time and pumped trillions of dollars into the banking system to stop it. So, and God, man, I don't wish economic turmoil upon anybody. It's not what I'm going for here. But what we keep doing is bailing out the, the system by printing money. And so we are just in the most bizarre situation today in early 2023 of the Fed has started to tighten the money supply because they're facing inflation. And really, the key way to kill inflation is by tightening the money supply. And we're going to see if that has the, the consequence of, you know, the chickens coming home to roost or whatever you want, that all this risky debt and, and you know, risky speculative debt will correct downwards and it's clear like wall street hasn't wrapped its head around the fact that we have moved into a higher interest rate environment i mean that's like on the front page of the wall street journal wall street doesn't take the fed seriously they don't think this is real they think the fed is going to cut rates this year again like the fed is you know hiked rates up to like four and a half percent and it's going to hit 5%, but Wall Street doesn't think that it's going to stay there. So we we put so much energy into not reckoning with this stuff. And I just don't know where we're going to go from here. I, maybe the Fed will cut rates again. And But, but I got to get back to the central point that really preoccupies me. I am so, so sincerely convinced the U.S. is living through the symptoms of really unhealthy income inequality. I mean, you hear it again and again, the people in this country think the system is rigged against them, they're exhausted, they're overworked, they're living paycheck to paycheck, a lot of people are. And that's a super negative consequence of this kind of economic policy where you're pumping up stocks and the middle class is just sort of, you know, stagnating, treading water for 10 years. It doesn't really work. So I think we're already seeing the consequences. Yeah. Again, I just, as an aside, Christopher, we're seeing similar fissures emerge in, in Canadian society around the issue of housing affordability in our, our major cities, uh, where gen young generations uh, are 
looking at the prospect of home ownership in Toronto or Montreal and Vancouver, and it it seems increasingly beyond their reach. My final question is about the institutional culture that produced these outcomes. We've already talked about the lack of scrutiny. The book highlights the long ovation that Bernanke received in his final Fed meeting. And of course, he just won the Nobel Prize last year in large part for his translation of theory into practice during the global financial crisis. It may be that reasonable people can agree or disagree with individual policy choices, but what explains the lack of public debate and dissent and the presence of such hubris in your story? Well, I do want to underscore the point that there's tremendous hubris. And it, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm perplexed. I mean, I went into this book thinking I was writing kind of like an explainer book. Like one of my role models is Michael Lewis, the great business reporter. And like his book, Moneyball, is just a really cool book explaining a system. And I thought I was going to do that with quantitative easing. But reading through the internal debates and looking at this decision making was unbelievable. Ben Bernanke took so many huge risks and was so astoundingly wrong about so much. You just look at the debate about quantitative easing in 2012. Bernanke had his staff draw up a forecast of what was going to happen. All the numbers are in the book. It's stunningly wrong. They were wrong on inflation. They were wrong on how easy it was going to be to stop these programs. When when Bernanke wrote his memoir in 2015, he declared victory. He's like, you know, QE worked. And that was, you know, he's saying we won the ball game in the third inning. It's like this thing is is still going. And um, I don't know why it is this way. I mean, I know for, you know, I know I it's pretty easy to explain why more people don't talk about the Fed every day. It's complicated. They they purposely cloak it in complicated language. We don't vote for Fed people, so it doesn't enter the lexicon a lot. I mean, I can attest personal experience. It is impossible to get people on cable news to talk about the Fed. Like, unless you're on Bloomberg and you're talking for business investors who just care about which way the interest rates are going to go so they can make money. But like for you and me and normal people out here, like trying to figure out what's going on in our economy, there's not much public discussion about it. But the uh, incredible awe and and respect and, and kind of like the, the fact that Bernanke just sort of seems like beyond criticism is uh, mind blowing to me. I'll be totally honest. I don't understand it. I think that this guy is totally reckless. Uh, the hubris is on the record. It's not me saying this. Uh, this guy was like stunningly dishonest with the American people in 2010 when he went on 60 Minutes and said that the Fed's not printing money, which by any common understanding was a intentional non-truth. And yet the guy, <laughs> well, so, I mean, he won the Nobel Prize and that's fine. And like, um, I mean, but as a business reporter, it really is uh, important to get down the facts of what's happened and really give people a clear understanding of the dynamics that have led us to where we are today. And like, what's at stake? What it means when we talk about the Fed hiking rates to 5% and what that's going to look like for the rest of us for the next year or so if it stays there. 
that's important. And like those facts are immutable. I mean, the current chairman of the Fed, Jay Powell, is wrestling with the beast of Ben Bernanke's legacy right now. And he'll never put it that way, but that's what's going on. Well, Christopher, you said that it's hard to have public conversations about the Fed. We were grateful to have you on Hub Dialogues. The book is The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. Christopher Letter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.